Book Six, Chapter Two, Part Two of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Six, Practice, Chapter Two, Part Two: The Inquisitorial Process. Nothing connected with the proceedings of the Inquisition was allowed to remain outside of its walls. Every letter or mandate or instruction or warrant sent out was invariably required to be returned with the answer or endorsement of its execution. Even the edicts of faith and anathemas given out for publication in the churches were returned with statements of the day on which they were publicly read. This applied to the council entrusted with the defense of the accused. Not only was he sworn to secrecy and to communicate with no one concerning the cases, but the scanty papers entrusted to him were to be kept under lock and key and be scrupulously returned to the tribunal, so that there should be no trace or memory of them. The formal defense which he prepared had to be written by his own hand, and no rough draft of it be preserved. No printer was allowed to print such a document, nor indeed any other paper relating to the Inquisition, without special license from the Inquisitor-General or Suprema, under pain of excommunication and a hundred ducats. This jealous reserve explains the form in which the records of the Inquisition reach us, those of each process rudely but firmly sewed together and never bound, for they could not be given out to a binder, nor could one be admitted into the sacred precincts of the secreto. These injunctions of secrecy were not allowed to be a dead letter. In the edicts of faith, special clauses called for the denunciation of all cases of violation, or of papers concerning its acts being in the possession of any one. Its procedure was guarded with the same anxious care from public knowledge. In 1573, Leonardo Donato, the Venetian envoy, who regarded the Inquisition as necessary to Spain, describes its action as so secret that nothing was known of its victims and their cases until their sentences were published in the autos de fe, but the fear entertained of it was so universal that little was said concerning it through dread of arousing suspicion. He had been able to learn nothing of its methods, but was told that they were good and that the sentences were always just. No one, in fact, was allowed to know what was its form of procedure. The instructions, it is true, were necessarily printed. There was an edition of the Antiguas in Seville, in 1536, reprinted in Madrid in 1576. The Nuevas of 1561 were printed in 1612, and the whole were re-edited by Arguello, an official of the Suprema, in 1627 and 1630, but these were strictly reserved for use in the tribunals, and their details were constantly subject to modification by the cartas acordadas of the Suprema, which never saw the light. Experienced inquisitors drew up manuals of practice, many of which are still preserved in the manuscripts of the archives and libraries, but this knowledge of the estilo or methods of procedure was strictly confined to officials sworn to secrecy. It was apparently soon after the preparation of the instructions of 1561 that a Dr. Blasco de Alagona, 
had the audacity to ask for a copy of them, when the fiscal, to whom the petition was referred, declared that the granting of such a request would be unexampled, and he had no difficulty in proving that parties before the tribunal had no business to inquire into its methods. The instructions were solely for its guidance, and were to be known to others only by their results in the administration of justice. If they came to public knowledge, evil-intentioned men could debate whether the estilo of the Inquisition was good or bad. The extreme importance of the seal was fully recognized in assuring freedom of irresponsible action and in creating the popular impression of mysterious impeccability. Philip II, in his instructions to Manrique de Lara in 1595, dwelt on this and pointed out that, quote, without it, the holy office could not preserve the untrammeled exercise of its functions, end quote, wherefore any official violating it must be punished with the utmost rigor. Apparently, cases of infraction occurred, drawing from the Suprema a carta acordada, pointing out that all the power and authority and reputation of those serving in the holy office rested upon secrecy. The more secret its affairs were kept, the more they were venerated by those from whom they were concealed. The neglect of this had aroused in the Suprema the greatest resentment, as it was a matter of so great moment to the estimation and respect in which the affairs and the members of the Inquisition had always been held. Therefore, it had been resolved that the oath of secrecy, taken on admission to office, should be so construed that its infraction should constitute perjury and infidelity. Single witnesses should suffice for conviction. On a first offense, the culprit should be suspended irremissibly for a year and pay fifty ducats, and on a repetition be perpetually dismissed. Even if not convicted, he should realize that, in the forum of conscience, he could not draw his salary. This secrecy covered not only matters of faith and depending thereon, but all votes, orders, determinations, letters of the Suprema, informations of limpieza, and all other matters, no information concerning which was to be given to the parties concerned or to any outside person, while even the public utterances of the tribunals were not to be spoken of. Moreover, the above penalties and major excommunication were incurred by all who, knowing the infractions of secrecy, did not report them to the Suprema. Finally, this carta was ordered to be filed with the instructions, to be read annually to the assembled officials. The instructions to commissioners warned them that the existence and preservation of the Inquisition depended chiefly on the absolute secrecy to be observed as to all its affairs. This continued to the end. A decree of the Suprema, December 7, 1814, speaks of the seal which is the soul of the Inquisition. In fact, there is no hesitation in assimilating it to the seal of confession, and in employing the casuistry which justified a confessor in denying under oath what he had learned in the confessional. Similarly, the official was told that no oath was binding when the affairs of the Inquisition were concerned. He could depose as to what he knew as an individual, but not what he knew as an official entrusted with its secrets. We can understand the significance of the popular saying, Con el rey y la Inquisición chitón. Keep silence as to the king and the Inquisition.
Even within the tribunals, the same mystery was observed in investigating cases of infraction. When an intimation was received that secrecy had been violated, the junior inquisitor examined into it and wrote out the information with his own hand and without allowing anyone to know of it. This was then deposited in a separate chest, of which the senior inquisitor held the key. The Suprema was advised of the matter, and its instructions were awaited. Not the least important result of this secrecy was the fact that it enabled the Inquisition to combine legislative and judicial functions in a manner known to no other tribunal. It framed its own code and administered it in darkness. It is true, as we shall have occasion to see, that many of the regulations and limitations of the instructions were inspired by a sense of justice, but this mattered little when the secrecy, so jealously preserved, practically left everything to the discretion of the tribunal, until the Suprema absorbed and centralized everything into itself. Shielded from responsibility, save to the more or less perfunctory occasional visitation of an inspector, there was scarce any injustice that could not be safely perpetrated, or any enmity that a perjured witness could not gratify. The secrets of those dark prison houses will never be known, even by the records, for these were framed by those whose acts they recount, and they may be true or falsified. What was the real administration of so-called justice can only be guessed by occasional revelations, such as we chance to have in the trials of Archbishop Carranza, of the nuns of San Placido, of Jerónimo de Villanueva, of Fray Froilan Díaz, and, when the principles of justice were set at naught by the chiefs of the Inquisition in the cases of those so prominent, it is not likely that the obscure were treated with greater consideration by the tribunals. At its best, the inquisitorial process left much to the temper and disposition of the judge. As modified by the Inquisition, the fate of the accused was virtually at the discretion of the tribunal, and that discretion was relieved of the wholesome restraint of publicity. At a time when, as we have seen, the secular courts, although open to the public, were little better than instruments of oppression and extortion, it is not to be imagined that the inquisitorial tribunals, shrouded in impenetrable secrecy and largely dependent for support on fines and confiscations, were scrupulous in the administration of the cruel laws against heresy. In the original medieval inquisition, the procedure was a pure inquisitio, the inquisitor frankly acting as both prosecutor and judge, collecting testimony, examining witnesses, seeking to make the accused confess or convict himself, and passing sentence. As the institution, in the fifteenth century, declined and became disorganized, its duties were to some extent resumed by the bishops, in whose courts the pressure of multifarious business had long rendered necessary a prosecuting officer, known as the promotor fiscal, duly trained in the civil and canon law. Cases of heresy inevitably followed the routine of the court, and consequently assumed the form of actions between the fiscal and the accused, as plaintiff and defendant, with the bishop or his official as judge. This, at least in appearance, removed one of the most repulsive features of the pure inquisitorial process, as the judge was no longer a party to the case, and could affect a semblance of impartiality, 
even though he were, in reality, the instigator of the prosecution. When the holy office was established in Castile, it assumed to be merely the continuance of the old inquisition. In its collections of privileges, it included papal thirteenth-century bulls, along with the modern ones, and the ferocious laws of Frederick II with the sedulas of the Catholic kings. Yet it knew so little of the older formulas and procedure that it adopted those of the secular and spiritual tribunals of the period, and thus its practice assumed the external form of accusatio rather than of inquisitio, with a fiscal or public prosecutor as an accuser. While on the surface this is a step towards fairness and justice, care was taken that the interests of the faith should not suffer. It gave to the inquisitors the assistance of a trained lawyer, whose business it was to prove his charges, who lost no opportunity of exaggerating the offenses imputed to the accused, who assumed that they had been proved, who resisted all the efforts of the defense to disprove them, and who was free from all the penalties and responsibilities of an accuser. The form of sentence, adopted at the beginning and steadfastly adhered to, asserts that the judges have been listening to a case pending between the fiscal and the defendant, and they find that the fiscal either has proved his charges completely or partially, or that he has failed to do so. This was an assumption perfectly false, and intended to deceive the people when read in an auto de fe. It was the inquisitors who gathered testimony. The instructions of 1484 expressly ordered the examination of witnesses to be made personally by an inquisitor, and not to be committed to a notary, unless the witness is too sick to appear, and it should be indecent for the inquisitor to go to him when he could empower the ecclesiastical judge to perform the duty with a notary. Business was too pressing, however, for the inquisitors always to examine witnesses, and they frequently deputized persons to act for them, but those deputies were never the fiscal, and the apologetic tone of the commission shows that it was irregular and demanded an excuse. As time went on, the tendency to shirk the labor increased. The notaries were allowed to examine, by the instructions of 1498, provided it was in presence of the inquisitor. Then this condition was neglected, in spite of vehement remonstrance by the Suprema, and finally, in the later period, when there was little serious work to be done, special commissions, as we have seen, were common, apparently with no greater excuse than the indolence of the inquisitors. Still, the fiction was preserved that the witnesses were presented by the fiscals, although the Suprema, in 1534, informed them that it was no part of their duty to collect evidence, although if they obtained any, they were to communicate it to the inquisitors. Their duties, in fact, in addition to seeking the condemnation of the accused, were those of a superior clerk of the court, to draw up accusations, to conduct correspondence, to advise the inquisitors, to marshal the evidence, to keep the records in order, or to see that the secretaries did so, to attend to the execution of sentences, and to exercise a general supervision over the officials, besides attending the meetings of the Junta de Hacienda, and looking after the financial interests of the tribunal. The fiscal, moreover, served a useful purpose as a bogie to frighten the accused, who were constantly threatened with what would happen if they did not confess before he was admitted to present a formal accusation, 
in which he customarily demanded torture and relaxation for them. But, after all, his chief use was to preserve the fiction that the prosecution was an action between parties. As Simancas says, even when the culprit confesses, the fiscal must present an accusation in order that a judgment may be based on accuser, accused, and judge. In short, he was simply one of the officers of the court, who, as a trained lawyer, gave to the inquisitors, who were apt to be theologians, the benefit of his legal knowledge. His only real position as a party to an action was a distinct disadvantage to the accused, for, in case of acquittal or of a sentence which he deemed too light, he had the right, not infrequently exercised, of appealing to the Suprema, and consequently his assent to the decision was necessary. As his dignity gradually increased, he was classed among the judges by the Cortes of Aragon in 1646. We have seen how he finally came to be known as Inquisitor Fiscal, and how his place was generally filled by one of the inquisitors, who, however, abstained from the final vote on the case. The fiscal, indeed, from an early period, was admitted to the consulta de fe, where he could state facts and advance arguments, a most indecent privilege, though he was required to depart before the vote was taken. In 1660 this was discontinued, not in consequence of its shocking incongruity, but because there was a troublesome question of precedence between him and the episcopal ordinary, whose duty it was to be present. There was nothing in the function of the fiscal to prevent the inquisitor from initiating proceedings on the strength of any rumors that might reach him, or of compromising evidence gathered from the confessions of others. He had not to wait for the fiscal's action, but could order an inquest to be made and testimony to be taken, and when this was done, it was given to the fiscal to be put into shape for the formal prosecution. No matter how upright might be the inquisitor, the mere fact that he had ordered an arrest and trial necessarily committed him to belief in the guilt of the accused. He was unconsciously prejudiced from the start, and to acquit cost a greater effort than to convict. Thus, although externally the form of procedure was accusatio, in reality it was inquisitio, and the injection of the fiscal as accuser only diminished the chances of the defense, by giving the inquisitors a skilled legal assistant in the conduct of a prosecution, in which they were all prosecutors. Yet, whatever we may think of the morality of the inquisitorial process, there can be no doubt as to its efficacy. In studying the long and minute records of the trials, where every detail is set forth in writing, it is instructive to see how often the accused, who commences by boldly asserting his orthodoxy, comes in successive audiences to make some admission of which advantage is skillfully taken, and gradually the denial breaks down, or perhaps yields to the terrors of the accusation and the publication of evidence, ending in complete confession and eager implication of kindred and friends. The situation of the accused, in fact, was helpless. Standing up alone before the stern admonitions of the trained and pitiless judge, brooding in his cell, cut off from all external communication during weeks or months of interval between his audiences, apparently forgotten, but living in the constant uncertainty of being at any moment summoned to appear, 
torturing his mind as to the impression which his utterances might have made, or the deductions drawn from his admissions or denials, balancing between the chances of escape by persistent assertions of innocence and those of condemnation as an impenitente negativo, and urged by his so-called advocate to confess and throw himself on the mercy of the tribunal, it required an exceptionally resolute temperament to endure the prolonged strain, with the knowledge that the opponent in the deadly game always had in reserve the terrible resource of the torture chamber. The whole course of the procedure was based on the assumption that the accused was guilty, that it was the province of the tribunal to induce or compel him to confess his guilt, and in the great majority of instances the assumption was correct. To those who regarded aberrations from the faith as the greatest of crimes before God and man, and their punishment as the most acceptable service that man could render to God, this presumption of guilt served to justify the cruelty of the procedure, and the denial of all facilities for defense, which, to those trained in the principles of English justice, seem the imprescriptible right of the accused, whether innocent or not. There can indeed be no doubt that, amid such greed and callous indifference to justice, there were men engaged in the service who deemed themselves to be doing the work of God, and that their methods were merciful. The Inquisition was not as other tribunals which only punished the body. It asserted its high and holy mission to be the saving of souls. As the Inquisitors of Valencia said in 1536 to Miguel Mesquita on his trial for Lutheranism, they required of him nothing but the truth, and if he had fallen into error, they sought to disabuse him and to cure his conscience so that his soul might not be lost. The instructions of 1561, which remain to the last the basis of procedure, are emphatic in cautioning inquisitors not to be led astray, either by the witnesses or by the confessions of the accused, but to determine all cases according to truth and justice. They must preserve strict impartiality, for if they lean to one side or the other, they can readily be deceived. If we may believe the veteran inquisitor Paramo, the holy office was so conducted on this lofty plain as to be an unmixed blessing to the land. Its holiness, he says, is so conspicuous that there is no opening for hatred, favor, subornation, love, intercession, or other human motive. Every act is performed with such conscientiousness and regard for equity and justice, the inquisitors so investigate everything, undisturbed by the multitude, that they inspire all men with dread of the crimes which are brought before them, and, in the all-pervading silence, they act with incredible conscientiousness. The evidence of witnesses is scrutinized in the light of their character and quality, and those who are found to bear false witness are most severely punished. The accused, while detained in the prisons, are treated kindly and liberally, according to their condition. The poor and the sick are abundantly furnished with food and medicines, at the expense of the fisc, and are favored in every way. Not only are the utterances of witnesses investigated with distrust, but, as time is the revealer of truth, cases are not hurriedly finished, but are prudently prolonged, as is requisite when there is such peril of the life, fame, and property, not only of the accused, but of his kindred. If his innocence appears probable, 
every effort is made to prove it, and, if it is proved, to avert from him any loss of reputation, for which reason he is carried on horseback, adorned with laurels and palms like the victor in a triumph, a spectacle inspiring to the souls of the timid, depressed by the severity with which the guilty are punished. Those who are restored from such peril to their former condition never cease to thank God for placing on earth a tribunal of which the chief care is to uphold the honor of the innocent. When inquisitors punish heretics, it is not with the desire to destroy them, but that they shall be converted and live. In judging and chastising, the holy office labors to amend him whom it punishes, or to benefit others by his punishment, so that they may live in security when the wicked are removed. To what extent this idealization of inquisitorial methods was justified, we have had some opportunity to see, and we shall have more. End of Book 6, Chapter 2, Part 2